The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Rachel. Hi, my name is Rachel and I'm an alcoholic. And I am so grateful to be here. Uh, Sung, thank you for asking me, wherever you are, uh, to speak. Uh, my sobriety date is June 29th, 2017. Uh, yeah, so hopefully next uh, week I'll have six years, which is a miracle. Thank you. Um, one thing I heard about anniversaries is I used to say, like, God willing, I'll have this amount of time, right? And I heard someone say, like, literally anything that I say today it's not going to be me making something up. It's something I've heard someone else say in the rooms of AA. Um, they said, no, like, God or my higher power, like, wants me to stay sober, right? It's me that's getting in the way. So, like, they said their name. And so for me, I go, Rachel willing. If Rachel doesn't get in her own way, then I'll have that. Um, so, yeah, I have a sponsor who has a sponsor. Um, I have wonderful sponsees. I've worked the 12 steps of AA. I'm currently working the 12 traditions with my sponsor. Uh, I have a lot of service commitments. And um, I just want to say, like, I shouldn't be here. You know what I mean? Um, so with my anniversary coming up, I've just been, like, reflecting on where I was six years ago. And um, it was really dark. Um, I was drinking whiskey straight out of the bottle in the morning. Every morning, uh, there was broken glass all over. I was taking the glass from the bottles and cutting myself. I literally didn't know what to do with myself, and I didn't know how to live without alcohol. I didn't know how to live with it. Um, I tried to kind of like stop myself a few times, um, but at the very end, which like around this time, you know, six years ago, um, I had a friend stay over. It was actually a friend from AA, because this is not my first time in this program. And I was like, I don't trust myself to not drink in the morning, and I'm driving to work, right? Uh, at the time, I worked in the Bronx, and so I was driving, and I'm like, okay, so I can't not drink at night. So like, I thought I figured out a good time that like by like 11 something I would not be drunk when I drove to work at like 5 a.m. and like I needed someone to like stand over me right but then I got to work in the morning and I started having DTs because I my body literally could not function without alcohol um so a co-worker of mine took me to the ER and um you know I told them you know why I'm there and they gave me this piece of paper which I still have which is um, I just want to cherish it because it reminds me of where I was and it says chronic alcoholic and it gives a description of the chronic alcoholic and then it says you should go to AA meetings you know and this is like how cunning baffling and powerful my disease was at the end it's um I wanted to get sober right I had literally just told my coworker to drive me to the ER right like I wanted to do it but then my coworker left to go back to work, and they told me I had to walk across to the detox. And I was like, uh, I don't know. Like, I started thinking, and I'm like, nah, I can't do this. So I went to a bar, um, and this was like Tuesday at like 2.30 p.m., right? And I'm drinking by myself at a bar, and I'm just like a mess. And I end up going back to my apartment, drinking some more, voice noting like all my friends, and again, um, some really amazing people in my life uh, from AA um, who I owe my life to came, picked me up, and brought me back to the same detox. And um, 
I remember, and this was, you know, what was so powerful for me is that I remember screaming in the ER, I'm sober, I'm sober. And I remember like being really annoyed that I couldn't say my S words and that I was so drunk. Like I knew cognitively like I was drunk and I was just like, uh, but at the same time I felt sober. Like I felt every feeling that I was trying to drink from. You know, for me, um, my drinking was to get away from my feelings, was to get away from how I felt inside. I wanted to change that immediately. I only wanted to be happy, right? If I wasn't happy, if I had any sadness or anything like that, I wanted to drink, you know? Um, I was a kid who, I remember uh, in high school, like, my, I was having, you know, a really hard time in 12th grade, and I sat down with my mom, and I was like, Mom, I was like, I'm going to start doing uh, drugs and alcohol because there's nothing else to get me out of my feelings. Like, that was it for me. Like, there wasn't, like, a fun period. It was like, what can I do to get out of myself? And so here I was in the ER, and I still, alcohol stopped working, right? So they put me in the detox psych ward because immediately, that's where I go. Thank you. Um, so I'll speed this part up. Anyways, I ended up getting there. I'm like, okay, I'm really going to get sober. And then after the first day set in, I was like, uh-oh, uh-oh, no, no. And I remember the first time I went to rehab, I was 19, and they had confiscated the conditioner because I had alcohol in it. And I had like taken a little conditioner and like put it in my room like in case. So I was like so excited. So I looked through like everything in the detox <laughs> and um, the conditioner didn't have alcohol, but um, the hand lotion did. So I drank a bottle of that, right? It didn't get me drunk, right? But like that's how much like one second I wanted to be sober and the next second like I didn't have that pause. You know, they tell me that like recovery is the pause between the thought and the action. I didn't have that. I was in complete an utter like submission to this disease, you know? Um, and I called my sponsor from the detox and she came and picked me up, you know, and it took me straight to this meeting. It was a Tuesday night. Um, I raised my hand and I said I had two or three days because I counted the conditioner, y'all. And um, I ended up running out crying, you know, and I was like, I can't do this, I can't do this. I ended up needing to go to um, a rehab for 30 days to just like, keep me settled before and it's been a journey um this life is literally i i used to hate when people say it's a life beyond your wildest dreams i'm like okay okay like y'all don't dream big enough you know um but like really today like it's really incredible like i was just sitting by the beach this weekend with some sober friends and like i can sit there and i can meditate with the waves and i can feel my higher power, and I'm not in this obsessive mode in my head, you know? I was always in this obsession, whether I was drinking or not, of like, what does this person maybe think of me, so what am I going to do to maybe make them think this, right? Like, this craziness, when like, it's not about me, it's not about that, right? And like, um, you know, going through the steps with my sponsor, and really seeing my part in things, um, and really going through that and then the privilege of bringing um, other women through the steps has just been miraculous. Um, you know, um, I didn't get like all the things, right, that I would say I wanted, you know, um, but I got so much more. Like I can sit with myself and not hate myself. Like that is incredible. Like I have the most incredible friends in my life who show up for me, I show up for them. 
we had fun, you know? Um, I was told, like, if I work this program and I have a connection with the higher power, like, if I have a reason to go somewhere, I can go anywhere and do anything, you know? And I love going out dancing with my sober crew, you know? And I love um, just doing fun things, you know? Because, like, I didn't get sober to, like, be sad and miserable. Like, that's where I was, like, back in my apartment and, like, back in my bathroom, you know? Um, oh, also, I forgot to mention, I had a missing persons report out for me. That just reminded me uh, that I didn't realize about until I spoke to my roommate in the detox, and she's like, the police were just here. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know? So, anyways, um, I shouldn't be here, is what I'm saying. Like, with my brain and, like, that obsession and compulsion and that spiritual lack, like, that threefold disease, plus everything else, like, I am just so, so grateful. And every single day, I need to practice this program. Um, I need to pray and give it over. I don't work this thing perfectly, right? I make mistakes. I have had to make amends to people for things I've done sober, right? Those amends for me were so much more painful, right? Being like, I have years sober and I did this when I'm supposed to be working a spiritual program, right? Um, I've had, thank you, to make amends to sponsees, right? Like, I am not perfect, but... I get to grow along this spiritual path and it's amazing. And I get to have a job today where I get to help people all day. And then I get to have another job where I get to do something I dreamed of doing since I was a kid, you know? And I'll end on this, um, you know, the thing for me is when the feelings get really intense and really hard, I feel like they're never gonna pass. Like I feel like that's it, I need to do something right now. And like one of the best things I've learned in this program is like everything will pass and just like to hold on and wait until a miracle and to really put down my ego and ask for help and that it doesn't matter how many years sober I have it doesn't matter what I think I look like like I am just another alcoholic like everyone else and I need the help and support of all of y'all so thank you for being here today because you have kept me sober another day that's it Our second 10-minute speaker is Tim. Hello. Hey, everybody. My name's Tim. I'm an alcoholic. And my sober date is June 20th of 2021. So today I have two years. Thank you. Uh, and I have every single one of you uh, in this room to thank uh, for my sobriety. I, um, if you're new here, uh, if you're counting days, I remember being new and thinking people like me and Rachel were absolutely crazy for coming up here and saying that our lives got better, we could do this. Um, I won't get too much into what my life was like before because I think anyone who ends up here, we can all agree our lives are not working pretty well for us to come to an AA meeting. Um, I'm very fortunate that uh, I didn't have to lose everything. Uh, my life on the outside two years ago looked like I had it together. I had a great little apartment in Williamsburg, I had a cute dog, I had a good job. Uh, externally, everything looked like it was working. Uh, but inwardly, I was, I was crumbling from the inside. And there's a lot of reasons why that was the case. Uh, but alcohol and my addiction were just beckoning at my heart's door and my life was starting to crumble. And thankfully, I didn't have to lose everything uh, for me to realize that I needed to come here. Uh, but in a moment of grace, I reached out to a friend who was sober. And I was uh, probably three or four cocktails deep. I asked him to meet me. 
to talk about sobriety. I knew he had been sober, and I wanted to know how it worked, and I thought that I, I could try sobriety out, and he point blank said, you're not ready for this. You're not ready to get sober. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he said, this will cost you your life as you know it. Like, this whole thing that you're doing with your life, this has all got to stop for you to get sober and for you to get your life under control. And I, I like a challenge. And so I was like, well, I'm going to prove him wrong. And so this was during the time of the pandemic where there weren't in-person meetings happening. And so he gave me a list of Zoom meetings to go check out. And being the good student that I wanted to be, I went on Amazon and I bought the big book and the daily reflections and like all this stuff. And it sat on my desk and I did nothing with it for about two weeks. And on June 20th of 2021, nothing particularly special happened, um, but a miracle did. And I logged on to Zoom. It was an 11 o'clock meeting. And I really don't remember who spoke or what they said. Uh, but they read uh, a portion of the big book, which if you're new to AA, that's kind of like our Bible. You should check it out and read it with a sponsor. Uh, but they read what's called the promises. And it says that if we're painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We're going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity and we will know peace. No matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of useful, uselessness and self-pity will disappear. We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. They're being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. They will always materialize if we work for them. And I remember hearing that and thinking there's a lot of stuff in there that I need and that I know uh, if I trust what these people are saying right now, I can experience. And this guy like slid into my Zoom DMs and asked if I was new and if he could give me a call. And I was like, yeah, of course, this is great. Like, get sober and let's do this. And uh, he's straight, but he, he, um, he called me and he told me a story and, and kind of told me what his journey had been and asked if I was willing to do whatever it takes to get sober. And I really didn't think that I had any other options left. And so I said yes. And he said, OK, call me every day. Uh, we're going to start reading the big book together, go to meetings, go to 90 meetings in 90 days. And I was like, do you know who I am? I have a very busy schedule. I don't think I can do 90 meetings in 90 days. But I was like, OK, sure. And he's like, get a service commitment. I was like, what? Like, I need to be involved in this for a little bit before I decide I want to volunteer, but OK. Um, but I just, I did, I did what I was told. And I said, yes, thank you. And uh, honestly, these last two years have been, I, I'll, I'll be honest and say that when I got sober, my life did not instantly get better. Like, there wasn't, like, the clouds and the heavens opened up and it was rainbows and unicorns and, like, everything in my life got solved. Stuff got really hard. I, I had to feel things for the first time. I had to confront things that I was running from. I had to 
call the IRS. I had to look at what my Amex spell was. I had to do a lot of things that I did not want to do. Um, but sobriety and, and doing the steps gave me the courage to do those things and to feel things that I didn't want to feel, to take responsibility, uh, to make amends, to say I was sorry, to learn how to be a better friend, a better employee, all these things. And you know, six months into sobriety, I had the worst performance review that I've ever had in my professional career. And I wanted to run. I was like, that's it. I'm going to leave this job. I got to find something new. And I stuck with it. And I didn't quit. And I recently got promoted, which people talk about that stuff all the time in here. And it's just like, yeah, whatever. But like, it, it works. It really does. And I think that like the thing that I've realized is it says in the book, big, the big book, but what we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And coming to meetings is great. Showing up is fantastic. But what makes the difference is, is doing the work and, and praying, meditating, doing service. Like when I first started, I got these really weird service commitments like putting chairs away or greeting people. And I was like, why is this important? Why does this matter? I'm the expediter here on Tuesday nights. And I can tell you that they're very important and they matter. And if you need a service commitment, come see me because I'd be happy to give you one. Um, <laughs> And I've learned how to uh, reach out and help other people. I have a sponsee who recently celebrated a year of sobriety, which is incredible. And it's just a miracle um, to see the change and transformation in his life and to know that I played a small part in that. Uh, my sponsor, who I mentioned earlier, is getting married next month. And he asked me to officiate his wedding, which is just like unbelievable. And, um, you know, Saying yes to sobriety did mean that I had to say no to a lot of stuff, but our addiction always wants us to say yes to everything so we can pursue one thing. And what I've learned is that sobriety teaches us to say no to one thing so we can say yes to everything. And it really truly is uh, a life beyond our wildest dreams. And it's all on that, you know, it says that uh, it's contingent upon the maintenance of our daily spiritual program and, and showing up when we don't want to. And um, one thing that I'll share that's kind of crazy, like sobriety has given me the opportunity to pursue dreams and things that I kind of put on the shelf. I was like, that's oh, not going to happen. I'm never going to do it. Uh, and one of the dreams that I've had for a long time is to be a writer. And so uh, about a year ago, I started taking writing classes and I did some retreats and stuff. And um, just today, which is crazy, um, I, signed, I signed with a literary agent yeah. who wants to help me tell my story. And I'm saying all this stuff not like, oh great, I'm amazing, but just to say like, this, this program works. Um, and I'm living proof of it because I should not be here. Like the vision board for my life did not have me in a suit on a church on Park Avenue on a Tuesday night at an AA meeting. But the vision that God had for my life was much bigger than that. And the vision that he has for all of our lives is so much bigger than that. And that is the gift of this program. That is uh, what this is all about. And I just want you all to know if you've been here for a while, thank you so much for my sobriety. You've been a part of this journey, every single one of you. Thank you so much. And if you're new, keep coming. Uh, there is, this works. So thank you all so much. Hi, I'm Jamie. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Jamie.
So I have to get this out of the way. I had way too many drinks in the last two hours and I really have to pay. <laughs> Some things don't change. If I knew you had so much information, I would have taken a break. So this guy came up to me before the meeting and said, are you the speaker tonight? I said, yeah. He said, okay, just don't talk about God or working the steps. I hope he doesn't have any tomatoes. If he does, I dressed appropriately. All right. Um, I want to thank uh, Preacher for asking me to speak. I want to thank my very good friend, Cynthia, for driving me tonight. Um, like I said, my name's Jamie. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, my sobriety date is June 7th, 2008. And my home group is Designed for Living. We're a big book study group uh, in Neptune, New Jersey. We meet Sunday nights at 7 p.m. And if you're ever down the shore, we'd be happy to have you. Um, you know, I'm happy to be here. I have uh, I met Cynthia when I was eight days sober, um, which was just over 15 years ago. And I've been hearing about this group for 15 years. So I'm happy to finally make it. Um, so, you know, I was sitting in the corner um, a little earlier and uh, before the meeting started, because we got here really early. Thanks, Cynthia. It's probably why I have to pay. Um, and, uh, and I was thinking about, I was looking at this beautiful church and I was watching you all like frolic with each other and such. And I was thinking how grateful I am to be a sober woman of grace and dignity today. And then immediately following that, I was thinking about how I'm even more grateful for being a dirty, disgusting, falling down, pathological, want to kill yourself every day drunk. Because if I wasn't that kind of drunk, I would have never gotten this gift. And if I never got this gift, I'd just be another miserable person. Because I was really miserable far before I ever picked up a drink. Now my misery, um, my misery, which I think started as soon as I came out of the womb, <laughs> is really irrelevant, right? I learned my misery was really irrelevant. I learned my ch terrible childhood was really irrelevant. But I will say that, you know, I've heard so many people in front of the podium say, you know, I had a really horrible childhood. I always thought I had a really horrible childhood. And then, you know, as I got sober, I realized it wasn't that bad. I guess I'm not that sober yet, because <laughs> it was. St I still think it was really a bad. Um, but I learned that that was irrelevant. I learned that the fact that I felt different and I didn't fit in and all that, like yeah, those are commonalities, and you might identify with me because of them. But they're all irrelevant, and they're irrelevant because I have a sister that's two and a half years older than me that had an equal, equally horrible childhood, probably worse. Um, and uh, she even, you know, had a period in 11th grade where she drank too much and did some PCP and ended up in rehab. And, you know, after that, you know, she was like, okay, this isn't for me. And, you know, now she drinks like a normal person and the whole rest of her life is like a normal person, you know. Because at the end of the day, what makes me an alcoholic is the fact that when I pick up a drink, I can't stop. And before I pick up that drink, I have a mental obsession about when I'm going to get that drink. And uh, I learned that pretty quickly. I mean, I always think I didn't drink a lot in high school. Um, 
I mean, I, I was drinking like three bottles of NyQuil before I ever picked up alcohol by 12th grade, so clearly something was going on. Um, but you know, I wasn't, you know, I was just trying, I was just trying my best, you know. I was trying to do the best I could in life. And I was, you know, doing theater and doing stuff and whatever, just, you know. I was a miserable person, but, you know, we'll keep blaming that on my parents. Um, that's okay today. Um, you know, but, you know, short, shortly after high school, um, I ended up on Fish Tour. I mean, how that happened doesn't really matter either. I just thought I was going to college and I wasn't. And, um, cause I didn't know where my parents were. Um, but I ended up on Fish Tour and someone handed me a gigantic jug of Carlo Rossi wine. And as soon as I got that jug, that was it. That was it for me. It was over. At that point, I was an alcoholic of the hopeless and helpless variety. At that point, I did anything in my power to keep holding on to that jug. Um, I was a full-blown drinker. Within weeks after that, I drank 24 hours a day by the time I was 18. And by 20, um, 20 was a bad year. Um, I was in the, you know, the hospital rehab, mentally ill, chemically addicted unit. They love to put me in that one. Um, and uh, like three times in one year. Um, and you know, they said, AA, go to AA, you know? And so I went to AA. And I got there, and I just couldn't even look at you. I could not look at you. And then you talked about, you read this preamble, and you talked about how some people were constitutionally incapable of being honest. There were such unfortunates. They couldn't seem to grasp our way of living. Well, I was a pathological liar by the time I was 12. Half of my family disowned me and never spoke to me again. No amends, nope, not talking to Jamie. Never happened. Made those amends at the graveside. Right? So I was like, okay, that's me. Like, if there's anyone that is incapable of being honest, it's me. Like, my mother died three times. I had cancer, like, seven times, you know? Like, all these things. And I convinced myself these things happened. Because if I could believe these things happened, maybe I would feel a little better. Because I just can't explain why I feel so bad. And uh, so right now I was like, okay, can't do that. This isn't going to work. You know, I'm one of those in constitutional people. And then, of course, you had to talk about God, right? And, I mean, my whole life was the chapter to the agnostics, right? Like, um, I tried many times to believe in a God. I lived in a lot of shelter homes and stuff growing up. Christians love to come get the kids out of the shelter homes. So I went to born-again church, like, you know, I was born again like three times. Every time they took me to church, they play the music, and I'm into music. I sing. You know, I'm like, this is rock and music. Okay, this is cool. Okay, go up to the altar, say a prayer, and I'd say the prayer, and I get saved, and then I go home, and nothing would happen. You know, because I learned that in this program and that one, faith without works is dead. Right? We need action. I didn't know that. I thought something was supposed to magically happen to make me okay, didn't work. And then as life went on, I thought, okay, well, if there's, you know, everyone hates me, my grandmother disowned me, and she was the closest person I knew to God, so, um, you know, if she hates me, then God, if there's a God, God hates me too, right? And I'm just doomed to live this life. And I really believed that, and so like, you know, I knew, I knew I was, you know, I knew I was a drunk. I mean, in terms of, 
like knowing that I was a hopeless and helpless variety, wanted to stop but couldn't. I didn't really know that because I never tried. I really never tried. So I, that was 2020 when I got sober at the age of 28, about a month before my 29th birthday. I've been sober since. I just celebrated 15 years. And um, I never tried to stop because I, I, at that age of 18, when I picked up that jug, I found my solution. You know, I really did. I found my solution. And there was no chance that I was going to be in my own skin without that solution. It just wasn't going to happen. I hated living in my own skin. I hated it. And it just was not an option for me. So that first time in AA when you talked about, like you're talking about all this stuff and all I could hear is you never get to drink again. Like that's all I could hear. And I thought to myself, well that's not happening. Like I can't live in this skin and never drink again. Like no thank you. I'd rather die drunk. You know? And uh, I was just thinking about what happened after that, but that's craziness happened after that, right? Like I ran off, I sat in the bar, tried not to drink, but then I went into like, you know, ended up in a crack house, but didn't smoke the crack, and then went back to the AA meeting, but then overdosed on bills. You know, like, <laughs> the thing is, is I can't drink either, because I'm really insane, like really insane, you know? You know, in fact, I'm diagnosed insane, you know? Luckily, you know, that's just a myth too, you know? I treated that through outside help, and I've been stable and successful for 15 years. Wow. It's all an illusion. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, yeah, kept going, kept going, kept going. I mean, you know, being out there for the rest of those years, whatever, it was what it was, you know? I was always trying to find a way to be okay. I just couldn't explain my not okayness. I was always looking for a way. There's lots of funny stories that happened during that time. You know, there's joining the circus. There's marrying this random dude from Columbia so he could stay in the country. There's running marathons while smoking pot at the same time. I mean, you know, anything. What, what can we do to be okay, you know? And I add that just because, you know, that's kind of how I got here. The last of the be okay measures was to sign a military contract. Because um, I just thought, you know, I mean, I had always toyed with it. I mean, I'm pretty patriotic, I guess. <laughs> and so I always thought it might be, that's not the truth. I, well, I am now, but that I wasn't then. The truth is, is that I'm, I've always been allured by the thing that is behind the glass. Like, if it has barbed wire on it, I want to go. You know, like I'm really into learning about like fundamentalist Mormons and Amish. Like, if it's secretive and cult-like, I am all in. That's why I joined the military. I was like, what's going on in there? Yeah, I'd already been in the mental institution. I knew what was going on in there. You know, I didn't get, I didn't go to jail. Luckily, because if I did, I wouldn't have gotten to join the military. So, I had talked to recruiters over the course of ten years, and they finally said, like, the answer is no. There's no universal. There's no universal medical record. So whatever they ask you, just say no. Have you ever been in the mental institution? No. Have you ever done drugs? No, no, no. So I just said no. And I signed a contract to be a cop in the Air Force. Because I thought, that would be cool. You know, that's not it. No one's giving me guns in real life. This will be exciting. This will make me sober and patriotic. And I'll, I'll have a life worth living. Except for, like, 
singleness of purpose, and I'm a drunk, okay? We're all, I'm a completely a drunk, but I, this is an integral part of the story. You know, at that point, toward the end of my drinking, there were other substances that alcoholics used to keep drinking, and I was using them. So now, this is, this is how I got sober. This is how I got sober. Because the truth of the matter was, was that, you know, about six months, I was, so I, I signed as a reservist. I signed as a reservist in the, in the Air Force National Guard. And I was drilling for six months before I had to go to boot camp, and I, I knew I had to stop. I knew what was gonna happen was I was gonna go to boot camp, I was gonna take a drug test, I was gonna fail, and then I was gonna get kicked out. And the minute I got there, I was gonna get kicked out. And as soon as I got kicked out, I was gonna have to come home and kill myself. Because this is all we have left here, guys. There's nothing. This is a shell of a human. If I fail at that, I'm 29. I have no family. I just didn't get lucky that in that way. I never really had any. I have no family. I have no friends. I have no credit. I have no money. I have no references. I have nothing. Like, I can't fail at this. I have no sense of self. I hate myself, I, and I hate life. So this has to work. If this doesn't work, then I'm going to drive my car into the tree or jump off the building. Because I, I've tried many times, we know the plan, we know how to do this, we will have the courage to do it this time. We will have the courage, because there's nothing left here. And um, that's how I ended up in AA. You know, 45 days sober, when, I, when that fear of dying, that was my divine moment, where for the first time in my life, I cared if I lived. Because honestly, I never cared before that. I really didn't. You know, I lived my life like a cannonball. I just didn't care about anything, especially myself, you know? And so I came in, I got here, and uh, you know, uh, first meeting, raise my hand. And uh, I never thought this would work for me because of that stint eight years prior. It was really divine intervention. Like, I went on a canoe trip, well, I was going to church, like that happened. I, I don't know how that happened, but there was some stuff that happened before that. that that's in the hour long talk, it's not in the 30 minute talk. But I ended up going to church and like, you know, so I was, the day before my first day sober, I was on a canoe trip with my church and I was like not hungover, I was still drunk on the canoe trip and I got home from the canoe trip and I looked up AA and I went to a meeting. Never thought about it before that moment, never thought AA would work because I'm constitutionally incapable of being honest. And I go, uh, go to the meeting, raise the hand, immediately after the meeting, go in the bathroom, have a panic attack, didn't know that's what it was, learned later, and uh, had the panic attacks, I'm like, how do I walk out of this bathroom and not drink? I don't know how to do that and if I drink, I'm going to die. I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to die because at that point, like, I was a, like, bulimic alcoholic, not meaning, like, with food. Like, I would make myself throw up every night to keep drinking, so I was in bad shape. I could barely talk. My esophagus was destroyed. You know, I was spitting up blood every night. Um, I was in bad shape. Okay, let's get sober. we got 15 minutes left. Um, yeah, so... Anyway, yeah, so two women came in, they talked me out of the bathroom. You've heard this, they said, you never have to feel this way again. Um, they got my phone number, right? They called me the next day. And then when I'm pacing back and forth in my house, a couple days sober, and they're like, how do you feel? I'm like, I don't know how I feel, I don't even feel like a human, I don't feel alive. What do you mean feelings? I don't know what feelings are. They're like, okay, why don't you come over? And I came over to that one woman's house, and I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous with her line by line, word for word, and worked steps one through eight in those first 45 days, because I had nothing better to do, and then I went to boot camp. 
And as far as what that looked like, you know, I mean, one, powers over alcohol if it become unmanageable. Clearly, two, came to believe in a higher came to believe a higher power could restore us to sanity. I don't know what sanity is. That sounds good. Okay. <laughs> Step three, um, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of a higher power. Okay, sure. Why not? Four, fearless and thorough moral inventory. That one, I legit understood and I legit did it because I was scared. I'd sat in enough meetings in 45 days and heard enough people say, if you don't do this, you're going to drink. I did that stuff. I did that stuff. Um, and I thought the helicopters were going to land and I was going to be taken to jail and she was going to be like, you're disgusting. You cannot get this. You know, like what you've done is, it's beyond, you know? In fact, <laughs> I was talking to someone um, recently who was three years sober, and he was telling me how he hasn't told another human being all of his inventory because, you know, we're all just a, a drink away from being drunk, and that guy could use this stuff against him. And I'm thinking, you know, us alcoholics, we're hysterical. Like, we think we're so unique that our stuff is so bad and that someone actually cares. You know? Because I can tell you, in the 15 years I've been sober, I've heard a lot of fifth steps. And, you know, I really don't care. I, don't need, I couldn't even tell you. There's not much I probably haven't heard. I've heard a lot of stuff. And I couldn't even tell you who said it. And you know why I couldn't tell you? Because I know the power of God. And I know what God will do to you and your spirit and your entire being in this program. When you finish this work, you will not be the person that did those things. So what you did does not matter. And that's my grace today. And I went on and I did the, you know, I did the rest of the work, six and seven. I don't know what the heck those mean. You learn those the hard way when you stay sober for a long time. Okay, you'll learn what it means. Character defects, yeah, you'll learn all about it. Just stick around, right? It'll be on your knees saying, God help me, take them away. You know, um, and maybe he will and maybe he won't. But at the end of the day, you'll be okay either way. You know, because I can tell you, God doesn't take away all my character defects just because I'm ready and willing. It does not work like that for me. I wish he did. But the lesson for me today in maintaining my sobriety is that I don't turn my head away from God no matter what. When I'm in the middle of life and life's hit me hard and I can't show up, I still tell God. I still say, God, I can't. I'm not doing the thing. I'm struggling with the thing. You know, I want to stop this. I can't. I'm trying my best. It's not working. Help me, you know. Or I'll say, God, I don't want to talk to you about this because I don't want to hear what you have to say. But I tell God that because if I don't, I put my hands over my eyes and I pretend God is not there. And that landed me at an emotional bottom of 10 years sober because I had a God that did amazing things in my life. But he was an old God, not a new one, because life got hard and I stopped listening to him. And I thought I had a great God, and I tell you all about this God that allowed me to get married, have three kids, get two degrees from being like homeless my whole life, no parents, I have this amazing life, except for God is in the trunk of my car with duct tape over his mouth covered in three inches of dust <laughs> because I stopped listening. I stopped listening. So I did the rest of those steps and stuff, and you know, the amends process, listen. Our book says that we can go on without the family. If your man is afraid that the family won't come back, let him know. I, I can't quote it, but it says awesome stuff is going to happen, even if the family doesn't forgive you. And I want you to tell, tell you that I'm a testament of that, because I never got my family back. They left at 12, they never came back. And it didn't matter 
Because I'm okay with who I am and I'm okay with God and that's all that matters today. And I realized that all the walls that I put up because of the guilt and shame, they were only keeping me away from the promises that God has for me. You know, and it was only me shutting myself out from the sunlight of the spirit. It's always been there. God is inside of me and the knowing inside of me and I'm the only one that keeps myself out of it. So I went through that, thank you, and things got good, you know, for years things were really good, but I told you a little bit what happened, right? And I did the things, 10 and 11 and 12, I was doing the things. Doing the inventory, get the fancy app, send it to your sponsor, get a home group, have a commitment, always say yes, get all the sponsees, take them, take them, take them. We're doing it. And it became so mechanical that I forgot that our entire basis for this gift we've been given is built around the foundation. Now, in, our, in the big book, there's a lot of analogies about the foundation, and I don't want to confuse what the analogies say. The foundation is helping others. But for me, the foundation is the glue and the cement really is God. And this cannot be at any moment yesterday's God. Not for a single second can this be yesterday's God or I am in trouble. And that's where I ended up three years ago. In trouble. I call it my seven-year decline, right? Got married, starting having kids, married a man in the program, now divorced. Um, and, uh, but it's cool. It's cool. You know, hallelujah. Um, and, uh, and, you know, seven-year decline. Hey, hey, Jane, you want to go to a meeting tonight? Well, I don't know. Do you want to go to a meeting? Because if you want to go to a meeting, I don't have to go to a meeting. Right? As if, as if I'm powerless, like, as if I'm no longer powerless over alcohol because I've been separated for a drink, my life's not going to get unmanageable. I got to do all these things, all the things. What happened was I thought I knew who my God was, but when life got hard, you know, I was relying on this old God. And, and my son, you know, so it kind of happened, like things got real bad because my son got really sick. My second son got really sick. He almost died. He was really sick in the first year. And, uh, you know, I was not willing to have a conversation or open dialogue with God because I didn't want to hear the possibility that Frank wasn't going to live. So this was me talking at God. Dear God, make Frank live, make Frank live. This is the only conversation we're having. So I stopped talking to God for about a year. And then Frank lived. And then I was like, wait a second, where's God? And all that time I stopped talk, having a conversation with God, and instead I was talking to God, I had shrunken this higher power and put him in this tiny little box. And now, when I look around, man, I've been gripping real hard on life, and I shattered it all, you know? I mean, I, I, had, to, I had to refinance my house because all the sweaters that I needed to feel better during that period of time when I had no God in my life. You know, there weren't enough handbags to make me feel better during that time in my life, you know? And I needed to grow that God a whole lot bigger to clean up the damage that had been done in that time. And, uh, you know, so I did that. I did that work. I, I got a new sponsor. Um, her name's Mary Beth. And uh, she was my first sponsor, sponsor. And I knew, as soon as this hit, I'm, I'm like, this woman can put my hand back in the hand of God. This woman can do it. And I tracked her down. And uh, right away, we went through the work again. And we looked, at, um, we looked at exactly what the unmanageability of my life sober was. We looked at all the areas of my life where I was not turning them over to God, what the fear was with that, and how God would have me be when I was in that fear. 
Um, then we looked at what it really would mean to me. Every step of that third step prayer that I said in my bed before I got out of bed for 10 years, well, I said it every single day. What the heck did it mean? I couldn't tell you. I just recited it because you're supposed to pray in AA. But I didn't know what it meant, you know? Um, and I looked at what it really would mean to me to turn all these things over to a higher power. And then I did new inventory, and I kept going, and I, I grew this God big enough to handle anything in my life. And um, one thing I did was I stopped trying to decide what God could do in my life, right? And I stopped, and I stopped that, and you know, something that I really got wrong was like, all this prayer, all this prayer, Derek and I were talking about this before the meeting, right? Like all this prayer, 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 it's great, but all throughout our literature it says, God's will. How would God have us be? Well, how do I know if I'm not listening? You know, the one thing that is more important to me than anything else is that I have a way today at any moment to hear what God is saying. If I can't do that, I am in trouble. How am I going to ever recenter myself in God's will, which is supposed to be the thing that's going to direct my life? Right? Like a prayer a day, not going to work for me. Right? Where was I selfish? Where was I this at the end of the day? You know, listen, that's great. I did that for years. I sent it to my sponsor. Thank you. Um, but if I'm not connecting that to knowing God better constantly, Derek and I were talking about this. What is conscious contact? Right? Contact is an, it's touching, it's an exchange. It's an exchange of information. If I am talking, you know, if I am talking to God every single day for an hour, for a month, every day, you know, talking to God, talking to God, pray, 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 talking to God for that whole hour, and that's it, at the end of the month, who knows who? God knows me. I don't know God. Because I never stop to listen. So when I, when I ask what would God have me be today, what that looks like is like, if God was sitting across the table and I'm telling God what's going on, what's he going to say back? Who is my God? And what is he going to say back? Because if I can understand what he's going to say back, then I can work every day to live toward that in my life. Then I can work toward the progress and not the perfection. Otherwise, I'm just working toward my own idea of what it means to be spiritual. And heck, we know we do not want to do that. That's not getting Jamie anywhere. So that has been life-changing for me, trying to figure out how to, how to hear that voice um, and stay with that voice. That voice has told me that um, anything is possible. You know, and as a result of that, I stopped saying no. Like, I thought, like, you know, yeah, they say always say yes in AI, and I always have said yes. But it was like, okay, well, I can do this. I don't know if I can do that. I can take three sponsees, can't take more than that. Blah, 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 blah. You know, I have so many women, I don't even remember their names, let me tell you. And I have two kids. I'm a single mom. I have a full time job. I have time for all of it. I am not short on time. God has given me the time. You know, God has given me everything I need. And as long as I have that active God in my life, um, you know, these women, let me tell you about last year. Ooh, last year. I left my husband in October of last year because I was able to have the courage and the clarity to do that through facing my fears in this, this work, you know. Looking at every fear and understanding what God would say to me, you know. What would God want me to hear when I'm in those fears? And uh, it's great. He's happier. I'm happier. We're all happier, you know. Um, but, you know, divorce is divorce. 
any way to slice it. It's not easy. And, uh, you know, this has probably been the hardest year of my life in sobriety. And I'll tell you, I've never felt freer. They say, like, you're able to match calamity with serenity. And let me tell you something that changed, too, is I was always trying to, like, I was always trying to be this sponsor that's like, look at how I work my program. Now I'm like, look, you know, <laughs> I can't curse. And I can't even spell it out or a preacher's going to yell at me. We had this talk, like, 15 times because I love to curse from the podium. <laughs> love it. And I am so proud because I haven't done it once. I'm going to buy myself a sweater. <laughs> um... I don't even know what I was talking about. Now I just, my sponsees, they call it the junk show. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're a new sponsee, Jamie? Welcome to the junk, junk is not the real word they say. Welcome to the junk show, you know, because it's all on the table. Look at my messy life. I'll tell you all about it. Because God is going to get me further tomorrow than he did yesterday. And if there's anything I could show anybody, it's how we get through anything with God. You know, life is going to keep happening. It's not going to get easy. It's not going to be like, oh, that's so, so great. <laughs> yeah, keep coming. Because you got to come into you, okay? But God can get you through it. God's going to get you through it. But you can't hide. I can't hide. As soon as I'm like, oh, the guilt and the shame that I messed up today. I'm not going to talk to God. I am in so much trouble if I do that, right? Man, I have one minute. I don't know if I said anything worthwhile. But I hope I did. And if you're hurting, find someone. If you have two days or two years or 20 years or 30 years, you don't have to hurt anymore. And anything could happen, and you don't have to hurt. We can be in pain, but we don't have to suffer. When we bring out that God consciousness in our life, we take the next right action, and then we put everything else on the table toward helping others so we're not stuck in our crazy heads. It really does work if you work it. Thank you for having me. Yeah.